Hey guys, this is Rough Stuff Podcast number five. My name is Garrett. We got Steven and Zach back on. Hey, hey. Howdy. And today our guest is Tim Scully with Scully Off-Road. What's up, Tim? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. I appreciate it, dude. So what what do you... I know Scully, you got, you have, you're a fab shop, but you do a lot of other stuff. What, you want to give me a quick briefing history on what you do? Yeah, so our, our shop primarily focuses uh, in on restoration and development of Land Rover Defenders. And our primary focus at the moment it has been doing the restorations, but we also do a lot of LS swaps or the new Cummins R2.8s. Mm. We've got a handful of those that we've completed and got out the door. And uh, catering to the kind of the Land Rover community uh, has been my background for a really long time. So that's kind of why I rest there and, and focus in on that. The Defender market is a really cool market because there's a lot of interesting people out there that have a desire to build a Defender, but having a kind of an anemic Defender drivetrain in it isn't appealing. So it yeah. gives us the opportunity to spice it up a little bit either with chevy power or uh with the new cummins a lot of passion behind that uh genre of vehicle too yeah vendors got some passionate owners yeah and it's it's a vehicle that people are drawn to for a number of reasons it, it's cool it's rare there's not a lot of them out there so it really is kind of a it's kind of a niche uh, but it has that cult following too it's awesome how how do you like get involved in like why are you so stuck on the defender like how, how'd you get so yeah, pumped, so pumped, pumped over those. my um, my background started in tech school. I was I'd always had jeeps and I'd always been four wheeling. Growing up in Georgia, uh, hunting on our property down there, we always had four wheel drives and we always had to work on them. So I became good because I was broke and didn't have any money to pay somebody to fix it. We'd go out four wheeling in the mud or go up in the mountains and break stuff. So I I learned pretty quickly that that I had some mechanical aptitude. Got into tech school, uh, did a, a two-year kind of associate's program, and um, during that time, because I was the four-wheel drive guy, an internship came up at a Land Rover dealership. So I worked at the Land Rover dealership for a long time, and that's where my passion for Land Rover really developed. And during that time, I had an opportunity to do some off-roading competitions with them. They had a competition called Trek, which was a, an event that they sent people from the dealership to compete in. And we were fortunate enough to win the national championship in 2000. In 2001, we went to Africa and finished third in the in the international trial against 30 other teams. Wow. That is awesome, man. Yeah, it was cool. What an adventure. Yeah, so from that, my passion kind of in the brand sprang up. And um, it was around that time, too, that I got my first Defender and um, just kind of stuck with it. In like early early 2000, late 90s? Yeah, yeah. in the early 2000s, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I picked up my first Defender. Always still had the Jeeps. You know, I, I kind of categorized vehicles in in what I use them for. So my Scrambler was the rock crawler, and I had it built up on Dana 44s and 37s to go do the stuff we could do on the East Coast, Teleco and some of those places. And the Defender was more for you know, lighter duty expedition types of trips where I'd go camping for a week somewhere and I would take that vehicle for that particular, uh, for that particular type of driving. Gotcha. That's and pretty rad. Was that, was that tech school like in Georgia? Is that where you started? It was in that? South Carolina. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. yep. So I went to Greenville Technical College and got an associate's hmm. degree. And there's a funny story. I, I started off on the business side and, and was kind of going to, going through the motions right after high school, not really knowing what I wanted to do and was 
pretty much bombing out of college. And one of my one of my counselors was like, what are you passionate about? What do you care about? I was like, I really care about cars. I'm good with them. He's like, why don't you go look at the automotive side? And that's what I did. And it worked out for me in, in some pretty awesome ways. Yeah, for what, sure. what ended up bringing you all the way out here to California? You know, I was working um, after we did the competitions – I started to work for Land Rover as a professional driver, and we had events all over the country, but a majority of them were in California. So during that time, I was traveling extensively, and I was going coast to coast quite often, and I was at a point in my life where I was ready for a little bit of a change, so I thought, I'll move to California for a couple of years. Most of my work's already out here. There's some amazing trails and places to go off-road. A lot of the East Coast had closed down by that point in time. All of the major public lands that were available like Teleco and some of the great places that we used to wheel were, were essentially gone. And really, yeah, out here was wide open. There were still so many places to go. And that's ultimately why I landed in the Sacramento area because of the access to the trails and everything that we have here. We're so close to so many, yeah, so close to so many great things. When was that? Uh, I moved out in 2007. Mm. Yeah. And, um, that's right about when like, we started, actually. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, when I moved out, I met, and that's where I met Phil Lachardi and those guys and started, you know, kind of working in and around those guys to, to build some cool trucks. And we, uh, you know, shared shop space for a long time. So I you oh, know, yeah. had an opportunity to get to know Phil and Dan mm-hmm. and, um, you know, kind of the local four-wheel drive community and started to show up in my little Defender 90 to things, and people were like, what on, what on earth is that? Were you, were you sharing the space off the Gold River and the Rancho? Yeah. Oh, you were? Yeah, so when Dan Trout moved up uh, to Gardnerville, uh, not Gardnerville, when Dan moved up to uh, Garden Valley, yeah, uh, I took over his space in Phil's shop. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Gotcha. That's cool. Um, so for me and anyone else that doesn't know much about Land Rovers, can you give me, like, give us all, like, the 411? Like, what... Like what? What's a crash course on a Land Rover? So what, what do I need to know about them? Yeah, so I mean, I think I think if you look collectively at four wheel drive vehicles, they all have good good things and bad things. Um, Land Rover has had a reputation for for quite a long time of not being really reliable vehicles, but I think that's a little false. I think they had a bad reputation for having things like oil leaks. And there's an old saying like, if your Land Rover's not leaking it's out of oil. Like you, you need to, <laughs> it's like a Harley. Yeah. You, it's like a Harley. You need to fill it back up. Um, but the cool thing that, that I found in Land Rovers over the years, and, and you find this in multiple communities, whether it's a Jeep community or a Toyota community, you find a group of people that are passionate about their vehicles and that want to build them up to use them for their purpose. And the crash course for me is always taking a look at the core of the vehicle. Land Rovers are built incredibly robust. The frames are incredibly strong. The axles and diffs are strong. The components that make up the root of the vehicle are, are a really good base to do what I consider the primary use form, which is more overlanding style. Yeah. When you get up towards the rock crawling side in them, you run into the same things that everybody else runs into. If you had a brand new Jeep Wrangler or a brand new Toyota truck, you're going to start lifting it and you're going to run into, you know, gear and differential issues. You mm-hmm. need to, you need to re-gear it. You yeah. need to lock it up. So the same things kind of exist, but because mm-hmm. the Land Rovers are rarer or there are fewer of them out there, it's just a little more expensive to modify them to that, That's kind true. Of that state. Gotcha. Is there like a particular year that you'd prefer? Um, 
for the defenders, they only brought the Defender 90 into the U.S. in 94, 95, and 97. So only those three years were true North American spec vehicles. And in 1993, they brought in only 500 of the Defender 110s. That's so in, in the culmination wow. of those four years, basically, there were several thousand, you know, call it 5,000 or less of those vehicles. So those are the ones that kind of created the cult following for Defender because they were the only ones that were available. Open it up to the import market and bring in gray market vehicles that are 25 years or older, and you have an opportunity to step back in time a little bit and bring something that's a little older in. And in doing so, you can follow the proper legal protocol to import them. And at that point in time, you can have an older one that's not a true North American spec, which which is a fair amount cheaper. And, um, you know, you have the same opportunity as far as modifications. One of the other benefits that you get in the gray market cars is the availability for diesels. Yeah. So you could get a 200 TDI diesel and, and bring that vehicle in from, say, Europe somewhere, and you end up with a left-hand drive manual transmission diesel oh, defender, that was uh, which question. is pretty cool. So that's... Yeah, that's- that's if if I had a recommendation, I would say that early '90s left-hand drive diesel would would kind of be the the one that a lot of people look for if they're going to use it for more overlanding or or driving off road. Is that like your preferred uh, OEM motor choice? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a number of choices out there. Um, the factory V8 that Land Rover offered was really good. We run into some problems with that in California as far as importing it because of yeah. the smog issues that come mm-hmm. with that. Diesels, mm-hmm. um, you know, give us a little more variable opportunity to to bring them in so you don't have to deal with, with that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, they'd be exempt on smog, I guess, right? Because yeah. they're so you know, early in the 90s. Right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. What country... Are you bringing them in from normally like is it is it Europe or it's, is it or is it South America too? It's or? mostly Europe, uh, but it's all over the place. We brought trucks in from the United Kingdom that are right hand drives, and we've converted them to left hand drive. Or some people like the right hand drive, so we leave them we leave them right hand drive. Um, Turkey, um, you know, Spanish trucks. The the later models into the nineties are are good um, hmm. from that area. Germany. Um, basically wherever we can find yeah, them. The, cool. the, the rest of the world has caught on to how much we love Defenders here. So the market for the next Starting year that's available for import, the cars are like, you could today go buy a 1998 Defender 110 for like 5000 the equivalent of what would be $5,000 or $6,000 in Europe. But the 1993 models are selling for fifteen to twenty thousand dollars because wow. they know they can sell them to this market and export them. So oh, the, wow. the value wow. is is hmm. like double if not more uh on those trucks. And then you have the cost of obviously shipping it, importing it through customs and doing all of those. It's always a ton of fun. Yeah, it's quite fun. Yeah. Yeah man <clears throat> my my wife Mallory was asking me to ask you if you can get her a good deal on a Land Rover. Yes. <laughs> Had, I keep I mean, telling her not to get friends one. Friends and family. Friends and family. Well, one, they're like so super expensive. Like the old, newer ones are like really expensive. And, and also I've heard the same thing. Like they're just not reliable. Yeah. it's. I think the reliability issue is is in, in today's day and age, there's so many vehicle manufacturers. If we're talking about brand new Land Rovers, there's so many, so many manufacturers out there that are making millions of cars and they're making them really well. They all seem to suffer from the same things. The technology in the car is so advanced now 
the communication networks in the car are, are more complicated than some of the freaking sure. spaceships out there. <laughs> yeah. There's data bus communication networks and all this crazy stuff that happens behind the scenes. And inevitably, software glitches happen and things like that. So it's no different than your iPhone having a, you know, a brain fart and you having to reset it. Uh, in today's car, it's inevitable to have, you know, those kind of, my Dodge truck has those kind of issues occasionally. The perception is that every car is equivalent, though. And if you're comparing a Honda Accord to a Range Rover, you're going to have some variable differences in what that customer's expectation is. You can't compare a $20,000 car to a $150,000 car in that yeah. same sense. So you can't compare that customer's expectation. If you bought a $20,000 Honda, you would have a certain level of tolerance for things. If you spent $150,000 for a car, your tolerance for those things changes quite a bit, and you end up with a frustration over something that wouldn't necessarily be a problem on a less expensive vehicle. So if you look at JD Power reports and you see some of the heavy hitters up at the top and you see Land Rover towards the bottom, I always try to take into consideration the fact that it's not that the car's leaving them dead on the side of the road. It's that they had a software glitch and they, you know, those the, the number of black for a the screen went black for a second or something like that. The reliability is there. The car is good. It's going to start every time you get in and drive it. It's not going to leave you stranded. But the other systems inside the car complicate that pretty dramatically. You got massaging seats, you got heated and cooled seats. You have all of these things that That's if you're crazy. comparing apples to apples, those other vehicles don't have. So when one of those systems has a fault, it comes back on those reports and says, Oh, well, true fact. This is a problematic car. It's not really it's not really a problematic car. It's just my cup holder didn't keep my coffee warm. Exactly. The heated the heated <laughs> cup holder. I do gotta say the the factory option cooler in the Range Rover oh, yeah. center console, the cubby box. Oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty. A family friend that has one, and oh my gosh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, pretty neat feature. Blew my mind. <laughs> We've seen the new ones out on the trails, and you definitely. Uh, it takes a special person to be out there with some of the new, new, new Range Rovers. We seen one last year on the Rubicon, and oh was, yeah, you're uh, telling me about that. It was guy. quite the adventure. I think I heard it was up there for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the older one that was with them looked like they were having the greatest fun and doing everything. Get the gap insurance. Right yeah, right. I, mean, <laughs> I thought they were going to have to leave it. Like It seemed pretty gnarly for something on 20s, you know. You know, dur during my time with Land Rover, we would go to places like Moab, and we'd be out on Wipeout Hill, for example. And I remember one particular time, we've got a line of 10 Range Rover Sports. The car looks completely out of place in this environment because it's, not big it doesn't have big tires and and we're coming down the trail and this group of jeeps is coming out they're all heavily modified and the guy at the front stops and literally gets out and stops us and he's like you guys have no business being in here like i don't i can't like you need to turn around you're not going to make it and you know we're we're challenge all accepted. out there to do it and basically yeah. said hey we we run this trail three times a year with a group of consumers driving the vehicles we're we're going to guide them through this and they're like wait a minute you guys are letting other people drive your car through this trail it's not like <laughs> yes <laughs> people that have never driven off-road are going to drive this vehicle up the trail and the guy's like i gotta see this so he turned around their whole group turned around and came down to the bottom of wipeout hill and one by one Damn. we took these 10 range rover sports without even a hitch up this obstacle and they were blown away one of the guys even said oh gosh i, I rolled over there earlier trying to make it up that and you just took a, a range rover up it on stock tires at stock, stock air pressure and everything it's 
I think there's a there's something you have to understand about a, a, a vehicle that's built to do what its purpose is. Land Rovers are purpose built to have off road capability. That's their heritage. It's what they're known that is for. True. How many people buy a ninety thousand dollar Range Rover Sport and drive it like that? Very few of them. But they're buying the confidence that comes with that to know that they can. They're buying the confidence that that they have the ability to do it should they need to. Not necessarily that they're going to use it every day for that. But the technology is still there. Land Rover stayed true to that. I think that that's why Land Rover has had such a a following for so long. Is it because they've been dedicated to staying true to their heritage, and and they haven't backed down from that. Now it's changed a lot. They're they're a lot fancier than they used to be. <laughs> but um, they still have the capability. Yeah, that's actually pretty impressive when you think about that because it's pretty easy just to go down a different path, right? Like the consumer path, which they, I guess they have done with all the fancy stuff. But mm-hmm. kept, it's pretty neat that they have kept true, true to that. So. Yeah, every generation of Land Rover products has gotten more capable. They haven't gone backwards on that. They, they get better and better along the way. and they That's awesome. They stay true to that in testing and development to make sure that that vehicle is the most capable Land Rover product that, that, that they've ever released. The new Defender's coming out in 2020. So we're going to see that new model come out. I'm sure you guys have, have seen some of the, the new pictures of it. And there are people on both sides of the fence about this vehicle. The purists, the guys that, that love the old school Defender, just like any time a, a Jeep model or Toyota model changes, they can't believe that They've done this to yeah, the... It'll be like the FJ, the same thing where everybody hates it. Yeah. And, and then they end up buying it. Right. <laughs> it's just yeah. one of those things where people, they either love the new one or they, they don't love the new one. But but what's undeniable about the next generation of Defender is that it will, it will be the most capable Land Rover product ever produced. It'll yeah. be it'll be incredibly capable off-road. What's like your uh, personal opinion on the new ones? Have you done any research on them or you know, I, checked out any specs? Yeah, I've spent like a little time around the new one. Actually, I still have um, some some affiliation with Land Rover and I've had an opportunity to see to see the vehicle, to see a, a lot of information on the vehicle, and I'm impressed with it. It's different. It, yeah. it, it isn't the, the old Defender, but I think a lot of people look at something like manufacturing and they say, oh, well, if you're going to change it, you need to stay as, as true to the old one as you possibly can. And if you look at jeep for for example over over the years they've consistently molded the next generation of wrangler to be consistent with the past but they've modernized it defender hasn't changed since 1983 right so from 1983 to 2016 that vehicle body shell exterior was identical it it was a strong enough vehicle in the world that they didn't have to remanufacture it they just kept it the same when they stopped production in 2016 of the 1983 body style. That's crazy. Right? I had no idea it went that long. They, I mean, that's a hell of a run. It man. is a hell of a run. Right? What other manufacturer can it's you weird. see Why in history see that's done that? I can't think of anything that's gone that it, long. It, they don't. Every wow. five years, consistently, manufacturers bring out a new... Maybe in the 80s and 90s, it was 10 years. But if you look at today's landscape of manufacturing... It's like every two years they change it. Every couple of years they, they have a, a refresh. Hmm. But historically, Land Rover's done that. They did it with Range Rover. The, the 1970 Range Rover body style ran to 1995. That is the best style. It's a really cool, classic look. And people still love that vehicle. 
But Range Rover's had four generations to change and evolve to what it is today. Defender has only had one generation, and now we're entering the second generation. So the change from that generation to the new one is as dramatic as the 1970 Range Rover to the 2019 model. So we should expect some changes. I mean, I wouldn't expect you to tell us anything, but no, I, can, I would expect a, I would expect it to have some modernized suspension and maybe yeah, some new body lines or something. In traditional, uh, it, it'll still look semi semi defender ish. It's going to have a defender appeal. Perfect. It's going to have some of the similar lines. It's got a, a pretty steep windshield frame. It's got a pretty flat back. It's still traditional. It still it still follows some of those lines. There are a lot of people that really like the new version of it. And again, the the purest out there are the same people that that will be the naysayers about it because they want it to be the old Defender. But the old Defender struggled, and the only reason we brought it in for those three years, 94, 95, and 97, as a Defender 90, we had to, beyond that point, add airbags. We had to, beyond that point, add safety features and other things to the vehicle. And to re-engineer the the vehicle in in that time frame didn't make sense because we were selling a couple thousand of them a year. So Land Rover made the decision at that point in time that the Land Rover Defender market was best for the rest of the world where those regulations weren't as, as stringent. So they stopped importing them. It's crazy. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, you have half the Land Rover population in Sacramento. Quite the collection in yeah. the driveway. Majority of those are customer vehicles, but a handful of them are mine. Tell you, it's the nicest eyesore I've ever seen <laughs> for a car guy in an off-road person. You know, every time I drive by, I can't help but smile. Like, yeah. man, that's a collection. I often get the, "Hey, do you know the guy that lives over on Winding Way?" <laughs> yeah, I, I know that guy. I know him. Don't go to his house. Yeah. So your company slogan or mantra is, "We are described as the line between the lines." Yes. What does that mean? So. A good friend of mine coined that phrase for for our company, and in a lot of ways, there are businesses out there that have a, a specific aim to do one specific thing. Our business is set up across multiple platforms, so I do off-road training, I do specialized military training, uh, we work with vehicle manufacturers to do durability testing. Uh, we've created an engineering platform to, to do a multitude of other elements within the off-road industry and, and in the training world. And that line between the lines is where we can fill the gap. What we can do for a vehicle manufacturer is help their employees understand more about how the features inside the car actually work so that when they're developing curriculum to go train them, they understand it more fully. That's the line between the line. Um, another example of that's with the military training. We work with special forces operators. We take them out into the desert for between five and seven days. We do a thousand miles off-road, self-supported, and we train them on not just how to drive off-road, but we train them on how to fix the vehicle when it breaks. Like we the train them on off-road. how to weld with car batteries. We train them on all of those elements. In addition to that, we give them an opportunity to learn how to drive on both fast and slow terrain, how to navigate rock crawling, how to winch and recover the vehicle safely, what all the safety equipment is associated with the vehicle. So we give them a crash course in that. So we're filling a gap, that line between the lines of what they don't know or understand, and we're doing it in an expedited fashion because we only have them for a couple of days to do that. That's cool. Yeah, I was cruising on your website and saw some military vehicle uh, photos 
And I, that was one of the questions I want to ask you too. Like, how did you like actually back to the training? What kind of vehicles do you do you train them in? Uh, our training fleet. Uh, so I work with an operation called Cam Mobility, um, Cameron Advanced Mobility. They're based out of uh, uh, the middle of Colorado, Eagle, Colorado, and. We have a fleet of about 12 ve- uh, vehicles that we do this training with. It, it's expanding at the moment because we've added a few more, but we use Toyota Tacomas, uh, Land Rover Discoveries, a couple of Defenders. We use Toyota Land Cruisers. And then the, in some cases, the military organizations will bring their specialized vehicles out. So we've done side-by-side training with daggers. We've done wow. um, up-armored, high-luxes, you know, whatever, whatever element... Th- that they're operating in and what they need specific training on is what we, we try to cater to. Oh, so you're, so are you, are you training them in those vehicles just to teach them the concepts or are they actually using those, those types of vehicles in combat? So, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, majority of the time, the vehicles that we use are, are, are based off of what they're going to see downrange when they head somewhere else. So the Tacoma's a close representation to a Hilux, you know, the Tacoma's. And they use Land Cruisers all over the world because they kind of assimilate and blend in to, to what looks normal for that area. If they showed up in a crazy U.S.-style up-armored truck, they would stand out like a sore thumb. A lot of yeah. these groups are, are operating behind the scenes and, and uh, trying to blend in more than not. So we yeah. operate in those vehicles for that. But we get to do some really cool stuff, too. I, I bet, mean, man. That sounds awesome. We do a lot of night driving with night vision goggles. We get an opportunity to, to train them how to read <laughs> and assess the road at speed using using wow. their MVGs. That's and, pretty advanced. Uh, occasionally, we get into some pretty cool shooting classes where they'll tag in a, a high-level shooting instructor with one of our trips, and we'll meet them at a range somewhere, and we get to do vehicle to vehicle dynamics and we get to do a lot of uh, a lot of shooting so out that's, of the vehicle it, it, both in and out yes yeah yeah well if you ever need like a set yeah. of hands or like <laughs> a volunteer you know <laughs> someone just to lug the gear around right call me that is it sounds it, awesome that's yeah it's, it's one of my work. favorite thing it's one of the things that I'm, I'm most passionate about you know because it's it's having, I never served in the military. I, I, I would have, uh, looking back on my life, I would have loved to have had that opportunity. But now this is, this is a chance that I get to, to serve the military and help yeah. them yeah, way to help. get through some. That is definitely a hell of a way to help. So, yeah. so this yeah. is beyond just like ground combat soldiers. I mean, you're helping guys that are just going to be stationed somewhere and need to be able to drive in harsh conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mean, a lot of the unit. teams that we're operating with are the higher level. They're the tier one and tier two, wow. um, special forces teams. So we're working with, with the guys that not a lot of people know about. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a cool part of that. That's pretty amazing, man. That's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. Plus we get to meet some real characters too. I mean, these yeah. guys are the high, highly skilled and most trained people on the planet to do to do what they do we get to add to that arsenal so yeah it feels they have really to be good. nuts to begin with so i yeah. would imagine it's probably a good time trying to train them yeah it is that's cool so how, how did you get that kind of connection again through the land rover world all of the <laughs> the building blocks for my career kind of come from that from that world wow. uh the military reached out to land rover uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, and needed specific training on Land Rover products, specifically Defender, and Land Rover was the authority on that. The team of people that I worked with at Land Rover were all international uh, champion-level off-road drivers. They competed in Camel Trophy. Uh, they competed in the Ba 1000. So the team that was assembled to do that training was some of the best off-road drivers for long range uh, on the planet. And over time, 
uh, in developing my work with Land Rover. I, I got to work with those guys pretty consistently, and that led me to, to working with the military. Wow. Do they still do the ta- uh, Camel Trophy? No, Camel... Um, Camel lasted uh, through the through the mid '90s into the late '90s, and it kind of dissolved after that. And that's where the Trek competition, the competition that I did, kind of came from. All the guys that that competed in the mm-hmm. Camel Trophy competitions put on this Trek competition, so it was very Camel like in the in that. If, it, I mean, if you've alive. never seen any of the Camel Trophy videos or what it was about. I mean, they'd be building bridges to yeah. get that damn yellow thing across That's the it. river. I mean, it was nuts. I used to watch that and just trip out on it. Yeah. And then, I mean, how could you not see that as one of the most capable vehicles yeah, in the world? It's like the most rugged thing ever with leather. It's yeah. the only way to Over yeah, serious it. distances, too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like it's a short course race. You're in Dude, a, no. you know. Yeah, yeah. And taking a convoy of vehicles over uh, yeah. uncharted territory, building roads along the way between villages that had never had a road. So there was a humanitarian element as a part of Camel Trophy as well. It was never just, let's go beat through the woods. It was, hey, we need to get medical supplies from here to here. How do we best do that? The team of competitors would plan the route and develop the the course, build the bridge, do whatever it took to get there. And then along the way, they had competitive elements where they would do... Uh, driving skills tests or a mini triathlon or navigation skills tests along the way. And um, that's kind of where the where the competition that I did came from because all of those elements were were put into it. That's rad. Yeah, it was cool. All right, so here's an, another uh, excerpt from your website. In 2005, Scully Off Road was approached by Toyota Toyota Motor Sales to pull off a unique grassroots marketing campaign. You want to fill us in? Yeah, sure. Um, Again, back to my affiliation with Land Rover. At the at in that era, Toyota was getting ready to launch the FJ Cruiser, and one of the spearheads of the movement to make the FJ Cruiser not just a, a mall crawler was this initiative called the FJ Trail Teams to put the vehicle in real world scenarios to go to grassroots type of events, um, TLCA Toyota Land Cruiser Club events, and get the vehicle in front of people, wheel it on the trails, actually get it out there and show people what it could do. And during that time, one of the people that had developed the marketing plan for Land Rover had moved over to Toyota. Her name was Kim McCullough. And Kim, when this plan developed, said, I've got the right guys for this. It's the Land Rover drive team guys. They're real world. They know how to wheel. And and, um, so they started courting a few of us to, to come over and do some Toyota work for a while, which was really cool. So I had that, that opportunity to help develop the plan for the Toyota trail teams and work with the team, the marketing team that was putting that together to figure out what it would look like to move multiple teams across the country to all these different events. And it was the funnest work uh, I can honestly say that I've done. We, we drove from event to event. We camped along the way. We wheeled the crap out of those Toyotas. Like, I mean, we were not nice to them. And they stood up to it. They they really took the abuse. We did 100,000 miles per vehicle. We had wow. Um, wow. 100, three teams yeah. that had a minimum of three vehicles, and we did uh, approximately 100,000 miles uh, of of driving between events in, in those time frames. And it was cool. It was grassroots. It was being around people and it was really interesting because you show up in an event in a brand new vehicle and a majority of the people there are like 
turning who's their the, noses to it real guy? quick. Like, <laughs> did you fly that in? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> or, or, hey, we're going to go on this trail with you. And they're like, you sure you want to go on that trail with us? Like, right. are, are you really sure? Take a wrong turn off the freeway, buddy. Exactly, yeah. So we, we had a lot of fun convincing a lot of people that the car that was awesome. really capable. And they, and they are. They're great. They're, they're, uh, they're super, super capable. Just humbling everyone. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have to tell them that we were professional drivers. <laughs> but Toyota did a great thing in that because they didn't want to to have an embarrassment. They wanted to hire true professionals. So we 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 did during that time. We hired driving professionals from from a lot of different walks of life. A lot of people that that had a lot of Toyota experience. A lot of people that had off road racing experience. And each team was filled up with with those people, so that in the real world we could. Uh, could show the part and they did some real training too they hired bill burt and uh, had him do a, a week-long training in-depth training on how we could do those things better and and um that was beneficial as well for a lot of the people yeah oh, what an adventure man that sounds like so yeah, much fun it was cool so that continued um through 2009 ish and it expanded from just the fj cruiser to the forerunner and mm-hmm. to the new tundra when it came out and we had an opportunity to help develop that more. Um, during that time, I had opened my shop and was doing more out of the shop. So they asked me to build the vehicle. So I started doing all the modifications. So every one of those trucks would come through our shop and get lifted. It would get skid plates. It would get winch bumpers and winches and tires and all that stuff. So it was a good opportunity for for me on both sides to for the forerunner. Yeah, yeah, for the yeah for the for the yeah. FJ Cruiser Tacomas and. The, and the Tundra when we got to that level. Wow. That's what was your favorite out of the three? Uh, I, I'm a, a forerunner kind of guy. I love me the FJ Cruiser. It was really cool. Um, it, it had some limitations in that it just had the suicide doors on it. Um, I actually had one of those FJ Cruisers and we me did too. a solid axle swap on it. We did the, one of the one of the early um, solid axle swaps on on an FJ Cruiser at Phil Lachardi's shop. Phil mm-hmm. and I built that truck, and um, it was you know, it was a fun project to, to build, but if I had to, if I had to go back, um, I would probably say that the forerunner would have been, would have been the vehicle of choice for that era. Yeah. Can't go wrong. I'm, I know what you mean. Yeah. You've had both, right, Steve? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Runner. Yeah. Oh, uh, seven, a forerunner or I'm sorry. Oh, seven FJ and a 2010 forerunner. And yeah. the forerunner was definitely my favorite out of the I bunch. forgot you had that FJ. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The FJ was cool, but like, I don't know if I got it from the wrong dealership or something. As soon as it hit like a hundred thousand miles, like every light came on and it just started having problems. So <laughs> that got moved on, but sure, it was amazing. Are you, are you sure that wasn't a Land Rover? Right. <laughs> For real. It was like, as soon as it hit a hundred thousand miles, like the window motor stopped, like, yeah. Radiator started leaking, like water pump. It was like, bye-bye. <laughs> Here's another one. <clears throat> when Land Rover Jaguar North, North America was ready to launch the Range Rover Evoke, they called on Scully off-road to train their dealer network. Yeah, so part of my development in the Land Rover world was from a professional instructor guy, and we went to all the events. And the next step for me was into the training and facilitation world where I would then train more people. Instead of being in a car with somebody, I would speak to the whole entire group. And <laughs> at that point in time, the the Evoke... Uh, was being launched and we were going from dealer to dealer and we would train the entire dealership on the car. So I was kind of a talking head at that point in time, traveling around the country to different dealerships to expand the dealership level knowledge on a new car that was coming to market, which was really fun. Yeah. 
got to meet a lot of interesting people and, and travel around to different places. And at the same time, you're in a brand new car that doesn't exist yet. So we pull up to a gas station with three of these things to fill them up with gas. And like a horde of people would just like <laughs> flock to us, like asking us questions and stuff because they'd never seen them. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Now, were you kind of training them on like the side of the capability of the vehicle, how to wheel it, how to drive it? Or was it more of like everything, like the actual hardware of the vehicle? Yeah. So... A lot of that was what the sales force needed to know, what the what the service rider needed to know when, when the vehicle came in to be able to communicate with the customer. So a lot of that was, I'd say, softer skills rather than physical hard skills where you're teaching them how to drive the vehicle off-road. We still did some of that on the test course at the dealership. You've seen yeah. the little rocky oh, yeah. courses at the dealership. But um, a majority of it was, here are the new features on the car. Here's what the new engine is. Here's how this feature on the car works. We haven't had this before. Here's how hmm. the terrain response system works and helping them understand how to communicate that stuff better. That's cool. Yeah. And that evolved from there to the next level where these days I am a keynote speaker for the larger meeting. So now we'll launch the new vehicle and 250 people show up and I'll get on stage and talk to them about welcome them to the event and talk to them about what we're going to do for the next couple of days and show them the, the new car, reveal it, uh, big flashy. Awesome, yeah. It's man. kind of fun. That is super awesome. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like yeah, a that's great a pretty time. cool job. Do you do that at like the dealerships or like a, or like SEMA show or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's similar to what a SEMA show would be, but not, not that grand. It's more of a, like a, a really nice hotel mm. that has a grand ballroom and we'll have the cars on display in there or have some form of reveal for the vehicles and mm. we'll have, a stage and lighting and all of that stuff. And that's we'll, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Are there any, like just, you know, like I, I always say like those Land Rover courses at the dealership. Yep. Are there any like crazy, just like st- anything like bad that's ever happened that we all need to hear about? <laughs> yeah. I mean, inevitably, <laughs> yeah, inevitably stuff happens on those. Yes. The early generation of those courses were pretty aggressive because the cars were, were uh, straight axle, straight but... axle and, and all of those things. And as we gravitated towards smaller vehicles, we had to tame those courses down a little bit. So the lower approach angle vehicles and the lower ramp breakover vehicles could could get there but yeah there's some funny funny videos and and funny sights of things that have happened on those where somebody pulled up and did the wrong thing did the wrong thing at the wrong time and ended up you know toppling over or something like that but it was it was pretty rare employees or customers but both Both, uh primarily (laughs) primarily the employees were the were the culprits though they would be pushing the limit a little too comfortable a little too far and that's why we didn't build a track here right Yeah. yeah can you imagine yeah, we couldn't keep a golf cart running here, so there's no way we'd be able to do anything crazier than that. I can't imagine anything motorized around here lasting very long. Break time is bad time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ping pong table is probably the safest thing that so, you have. Yeah, the guy's def- been really into hockey lately. Yeah. yeah. The only problem is it sounds like gunshots going off. When right, you're right, right. <laughs> right against the steel door. Yeah, yeah, the other day they were going off. And we're like, what the hell? Um, so I was doing some cruising on the web. Can you tell us a little bit about the build you did for James and Claire Young on their uh, Dodge Ram? Yeah, absolutely. So I met James and Claire Young at Overland Expo in 2017. And in 2018, they were taking a trip for five years around the world. So when I met Claire, um, lovely couple from British Columbia, really, really great people. Um, She is this little dainty British accent lady and and I'm standing in this huge rock course at Overland Expo and I just guided this humongous Mercedes Sprinter van through the rock course and she's standing behind me for a little while and I said hello and 
a few minutes went by and she's like, you're kind of good at this. And I'm like, yeah, I like rocks. I'm, I'm good at getting stuff that shouldn't be there through there. And she's like, I have a question for you. Would you, would you mind if my husband and I chatted with you a little bit? We're playing in this trip around the world. We're going to build a relatively large overlanding vehicle to live out of for five years. And we want to get some training. So that conversation evolved into us planning a training session for a week after they picked their XP camper ridden uh, Dodge truck up from XP Grass just Valley up in Grass Valley. Wow. Yeah, you know, it was, a, was it like a white or a silver ram? Silver. I think Greg might have built a bumper on that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that was the same one. It had XP from... Yeah, no, this one, the, these guys had a um, buck stop front bumper and a buck stop sliders or something like that. But um, somewhere along the way, they, they bought this 2007 Dodge truck mm-hmm. and it was up in Canada and it was the perfect expedition vehicle. Manual transmission, manual windows, manual door locks, nothing electronic that can go wrong on it because it was a simplified version, really stripped down. And they bought that truck and they drove it down to Grass Valley and the guy that runs XP in Grass Valley said, I'm not putting a camper on this. The frame's rusted. Mm. So they called me in kind of a panic and said, hey, do you know anybody that can do some work on this truck? We've got another frame and we need all of this stuff done to it. Do you know anybody that can help us out? And at the time, they only knew me from the training world. They didn't know how to shop. So uh, I said, yeah, I know a guy. He's, you know, he's kind of short. He's got a southern accent. It's really nice. <laughs> She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, I, I have a shop. I can do that work. We've done this type of work before. So they entrusted me to build their their truck, their travel around the world. And today um, they're in Central America now. They've been on the road for a year, a little over a year. And um, we did a complete frame off on their 2007 truck. We Damn. took the new frame and had it sandblasted, um, powder coated, wax oiled inside so it won't rust again. And then we built the truck up with Icon suspension, ARB lockers front and rear, um, Deaver leaf springs, airbags. Uh, they put the custom flatbed on it. I put a full electronics package in it to power the fridge and all the other stuff they were putting inside with an S pod. Oh. And um, basically, we didn't rebuild the engine, but we refreshed it. We, you know, head gasket seals, uh, new clutch, all, all of those pieces, resealed anything that needed to be redone. Completely went through the, the front end because the ball joints and stuff were shot. And, um, they've been traveling around the world in it. What year and how many miles were on that thing? It was a uh, 2007, and it was a uh, Canadian car, so it was in kilometers, but it had oh. like 77,000 kilometers, so about 40,000, 40 or 50,000 miles. So the truck was not even broken in, not even broken in yet. Uh, but it, it unfortunately had been somewhere where it was exposed to salty air, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, just probably from sitting. If I had to guess, it was a 2007 that had not moved much in that yeah. time frame. So. It uh, it eroded from within. Top five adventure or overland gear you can't live without. Ooh, this Top is one I'm excited. Five. To this was X question. Overland gear that I can't live without. ARB fridge is probably way up there. Um, pretty nice units. Yeah, uh, I've got a Garmin Inreach. That's a uh, GPS tracker, basically, and I have the ability to send text messages through Bluetooth off my phone. So when I'm in the middle of nowhere, I can send my wife a message and say, hey, I'm okay. We made it to Camp 3, or hey, we had a breakdown, or or anything like that. So that's that, that kind of coupled with the sat phone 
uh, for the longer trips is a, is a go-to. Now these are, these are on the extreme end, um, because not every overlander needs, uh, an inReach to track where they're going. They certainly need a good GPS. So if you wanted to say that second layer is some way to track where you've been to be able to follow that. There's so many great apps today. Mm. Um, true. Probably the, the third one would be GPS kit. I, I use GPS kit on, on iPhone. Um, the best tracking app you can import um, navigation files or KMZ files into into the application and really? see the route that you want to take. Um, or what, what app was that? GPS Kit is what it's okay. called. I think it's like ten bucks or something. But is it's, it like Onyx Maps? Uh, it's similar to Onyx. Um, the the difference being that in within this one you can have multiple layers of maps. You could have satellite image or the GPS topo imaging oh, wow. or, or things like that. And the track, the track that it lays down and the way that it stores the files, I find to be more useful than some of the other ones. There, there's so many great GPS style apps. So my recommendation would be whatever you do, just have an app that tracks where you're going so that you can lay a path down. Because if you get in the middle of nowhere, you can at least look at that line as a reference and see where you've gone, maybe where you went wrong yeah. uh, and, and how to get back out. Um, I, sadly, I'll admit, um, I am, I'm now a rooftop tent fan. <laughs> That's what... um, I, for the longest time fought it. It was like, I'm not jumping on this, new craze of of everybody and their brother having a rooftop tent and a couple of my buddies run overland pros here in sacramento and they make some really really awesome tents um they hooked me up with a great deal on one because they wanted some exposure because i'm always out doing stuff and um and i started using it and with a young family having the ease of using a rooftop tent is awesome my you know i can have the tent open in a few minutes and my wife and and daughter can get up in there and hang out and um we've really enjoyed using that so that's that's up on my list now uh although i've i've you know fought really hard to to not jump on that bandwagon now that i have they're pretty fun. They are. They they're, are. they're they're great. They're kind of goofy, but man, they're pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. I was laughing because that was our next question: was rooftop tent or ground tent? So yeah, I I, I spend probably between ninety and one hundred and twenty days a year camping, and oh, man, I'm um, jealous of that. That's pretty killer. The vast majority of that is on the ground. A vast majority of that. So I got a great North Face two man tent with a ground mat that that I use primarily. Um, a lot of that is the military training stuff because we're on the move. We, we camp every night along those trips. So I'm out for, like gotcha. I said, six, seven days at a time on those trips. And I do that multiple times a year. So I get a, a majority of my overlanding fix or my camping fix from, from doing those training trips, which makes them really awesome. But when I go camping with my family or we're doing a little less technical trails uh, we put the rooftop tent on and, and take it so if, if i had to look at all of that time if if i said 90 days this year i'll camp 60 of that would be on the ground and, and 30 of it would be in the rooftop tent on those uh, military trips are there any good hazing stories yeah there's yeah there's always good <laughs> stories from from those trips but they're probably not appropriate yeah. for uh, <laughs> right. certain things you once you see them, you can never unsee them. Yeah. <laughs> and once you hear them, you can never unhear them. So we'll. Gotcha. What's the, uh, what's the last two? Oh yeah. Most essential items. Think oh, okay. Um, all right. So that was three. Um, 
I mean, gear in general. I think overall people over-prepare these days. If you look at most overlanding rigs at an overland event, they have a myriad of shit, pardon my language, a myriad of stuff everywhere on them. You can cuss on this. Oh, I can. Okay, cool. So if you look at overlanding vehicles, they have a myriad of shit that they don't need all over them. Less is more. Less is more. (laughs) If you're going to carry gear, make sure the gear you're carrying is useful. And and purposeful. <laughs> hey, yeah. What you really don't need just carry don't carry five fuel cans because you want to look cool with five fuel cans on your roof. When we were doing the FJ stuff, we were up on Black Bear Pass in Colorado. We're at the top of the summit. This guy has five fuel cans on the front edge of his roof, strapped down. And I walk up to him. And I'm like, Hey, man, you're you're going super slow. What's what's you know? Come on down. You're okay. And he's like, I, I just feel really tippy at the moment. And I was like, Oh, okay. What do you have on your roof? <laughs> He's like, "Oh, I got I got five. I got fuel cans. I got enough fuel for the whole entire trip." And I'm like, "That's great. How long is this trail?" I don't know. It's like it's 17 miles. <laughs> your truck has a 300-mile range. Do you need a couple of 100 pounds of fuel on your roof? It's like, <laughs> "Well, no. I just thought I needed it." I'm like, "It's like overlanding, bro. You could have left all of those at your camp." So if you're yeah. if you're going to go somewhere where you need fuel, carry the fuel that you need. Carry it low in the car don't put it on the roof that doesn't make sense that's a lot of weight up high appropriate your gear carry the right recovery gear yeah. if you have a winch carry a snatch block carry a winch line extension or so, know how to use it yeah and and know how to use it don't just buy the thing and leave the remote in your console and, and never pull yeah. it out and test it so that would definitely be a big one for me and then preparation for the vehicle what do you do a majority of people these days buy every blingy thing that they can buy and they strap it on their vehicle my basis for vehicle for somebody that's new to this every the same thing i tell all of them is you need three things you need traction you need protection and you need experience and experience is the biggest of those teachers the more you modify your vehicle before you learn how to drive it (laughs) the worst driver you're going to be in the future and you see this with every num num out there that bought a brand new whatever and threw 40 inch tires on it with no experience. They don't have the basis of skills mm-hmm. to handle that level of equipment. So of course they're going to go out and get stuck. And when they get stuck, they're going to get stuck bad and they're going to really break something. Yeah. And then they're going to be mad that their brand new thing broke because they didn't prepare themselves for it. And they get a bad experience out of the whole thing. I take a stock-ish Defender 90 on 33 inch tires Seen through it. the Rubicon regularly right and i make it i have the experience to back that up and i have the right vehicle and it's got yeah. the right stuff on it but it's not humongous and it doesn't have big tires now i'm not knocking the big tire crowd i've got truck i've got trucks of 40s i've got trucks of 37s i'm not knocking that but if you learn how to drive at that base level your fundamentals will help you be a better driver when you have more equipment it's a lot more fun with the smaller tires i've found oh man i love people ask me all the time like Gosh, I, it's got to be so hard to drive that thing through the Rubicon. I'm like, no, it's it's awesome. It's fun. I have to strategically pick my lines, and I have to think about every move that I make so I don't end up in a huge hole or or yeah. end up upside down somewhere. It's not just throttle the whole time. Yeah, it's not just bouncing through it. It's it's more about the precision of it and, and more about being focused on how to not get there using yeah. good driving techniques. I feel like a lot of that, man, is just... You know, people on the internet saying, you got to get this, you're going to do that. Sure. And before they know it, they're racking up, you know, huge credit card bills with never actually leaving the pavement, you know. Yeah. They end up spending so much money on all these cool things that 
look cool. It's the next buzzword on the internet. Right. But they're not actually, you know, they don't know how to use a, a farm jack. They don't know how to go use a, you know, actually run a winch line safely. High lift jack is a perfect example of that. That tool is an incredibly useful tool in the right hands, but it's an incredibly dangerous tool in the wrong hands. Very dangerous. In our military training, we show the high lift jack. <laughs> hey, this is a high lift jack. This is how it works. And then we bolt it back to the side of the truck. And there are very few times that we pull it out. You know what we use 90% of the time? A bottle jack. Get a really good bottle jack. That's it. High lift jack is great. It's a cool tool. But most of the vehicles that they're attached to, you can't even jack the vehicle up with yeah. it. I don't think I've ever, I've maybe used one once on the trail. I've like, used yeah. mine as like a track before. So yeah. like I've used mine as tracks to get over stuff. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, otherwise maybe to change, get the tire off to change the axle or something. But right. otherwise, yeah, they don't really do much. But even in that situation where you're jacking it's the scary. vehicle up, it's scary. Someone the has to yeah. hold it's the a, jack because it's right. like, a, it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's dangerous. Yeah. Good times though. Yeah. And actually to add on to kind of what you were saying about the experience, I think so the next question would be if you could have some words of advice to, uh, for someone who has never left the pavement and is planning on selling their Prius to start wheeling, what, uh, what advice would you give them? Find somebody that you can go with, you know, you're better in numbers. Um, do a little bit of research on the area that you're going to go to find, find a trail that's, that's out there. There's, I mean, look at where we live, right? 30 minutes from my house, I can be in the national forest at the crossroads of hundreds of miles of trails. So getting out there is we have, we have the access to that, but getting out there and getting lost is another side of it. So again, make sure you have the, 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 the right means to get yourself back out of, out of those situations. But if you were going to, if you said to me today, Garrett, I'm, I'm selling my Honda Accord or whatever it is that I have, and I'm, I'm, I want to buy something. What should I do? My first question would be, what are you going to do with it? What's your plan? Are you going to go to the Rubicon? Are you going to go through the Mojave Desert? And once you determine which way you're going to go, that helps you to lay the path. Do you need storage capacity or do you want an enclosed cabin? Do you want a Forerunner or do you want a Tacoma? Mm -hmm. Right? What are you going to do with it 90% of the time? And what are you going to do with it 10% of the time? And this is where most people, I think, miss the mark. A majority of people build the vehicle for what they're going to do with it 10% of the time and then tolerate it 90% of the time. Yeah, it's backwards. Right? You you drive this to work every single day, but it drives like crap because yeah. you've lifted it four and a half inches and you put 37-inch tires on it. And it's a little backwards, right? Because 10% of the time you want to go have fun in it. So what are, what are you going to use it for primarily? And then what do you need it to do in the outside of that and build it based off of that? And if you look at it that way, logically, you have an opportunity to, to determine what your quality will be in it the majority of the time that you're in the vehicle versus only having that benefit the 10% of the time that you use it. Mm-hmm. My Dodge truck's a perfect example of this. When I bought my Dodge truck, I didn't lift it. I didn't put bigger tires on it. It is purely a tow rig. It lives to have a trailer hooked to it and to go down the road. So on my last generation, I lifted it and I put big tires on it and I had a road armor bumper on it. And that's cool. I really like that look. But it made it tow worse. Yep. In this newer truck, I wanted it to be a workhorse. I want it to tow. So I didn't make those changes to it for just the look of it. I, I made the changes that I needed to it. I did the exhaust brake. I did the, you know, things that I could do to make it tow better. Yeah, yeah. You focused on the reliability and like the 
the function and the and the longevity. Yeah, you know, any of those modifications come with some form of sacrifice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You put a lift on it, you put bigger tires on it, all of that wears everything <laughs> out faster, and then you have a maintenance aspect of it that you have to deal with as mm-hmm. well. What is the Trail Weld kit, and what's the evolution behind that product? Trail welds are are kit in a box that gives you the ability to connect two or three batteries together to weld. And you can take your battery out of your vehicle and set it on the ground. You take your buddy's battery out. You end up with two or three. Three's better because it welds better that way. Um, the trail weld kit was an evolution of what I saw as a need for people to know that they could get themselves out of bad situations. We started this training with the military guys in the middle of the desert, taking the car batteries out, using jumper cables. And you can still do that today. Really cool. Take, take two sets of jumper cables, three batteries, a pair of vice grips, and some welding rod, and it you're works. good to go. So in the military training stuff, we started doing that really often. As that training evolved, we wanted a quicker way to put the kit together. So I just made a couple of leads that connected the batteries together. So now I've got, instead of jumper cables that look like spaghetti and trying to figure out which one to hook where, I had one mark positive and one mark negative. And when you wire the positive of one battery, the negative of the other battery, it increases your voltage. So you go from 12 volts to 24 volts. You're doing the same thing with the third battery, negative to positive. Now you're at 36 volts. Most arc welders operate in that 30 to 36 volt range. And they mostly draw around 20 amps continuous, or at least this system does draw 20 amps continuous. On a, on a plug-in-the-wall arc welder, you can, you can turn the resistance up or down to create more force or less force. In this system, when you hook those three batteries together, you get two proper a ground clamp and a welding, a welding rod lead that you can connect to the last leads on those two batteries. And it gives you a, a self-contained kit to, to weld out on the trail. And, um, from the military training stuff, I developed the kit to make it easier for us to show them how it worked. We still do the jumper cable version and the trail kit version, but I saw trail as an opportunity to give people a tool that gave them a way to get out of situations. And very early on in selling the kits, I, I got a couple of emails of people that were one guy in particular was on, on the Rubicon. They drove all the way down from Oregon. They went down all the way to Rubicon Springs. They were coming up out of Rubicon Springs and broke a track bar off on a JK. And the guy pulled his kit out, buzzed it all back together, sent me pictures and videos of them doing it on the trail and, a, you know, kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. And that, that's, what I built, that's what I built the kits for. I, I wanted it to go to people that were really going to use it. It was never built to be a, a, a crazy seller or something that moved really fast. It's, it's built for people that are going to go and, and get out there further and want to have some security and, and weld. How many times have you been on the Rubicon and had somebody come by and say, hey, anybody got a welder? Yeah. <laughs> Every do you have time. a welder? Every time I go on that trail, somebody says, hey, do you have a welder? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. And I've had all types of the mobile welders. I've had a ready welder and I had a premier power welder and... Those are great tools as well. They're quite a bit more expensive. So for somebody that wants to to have that, have it and not need it situation, you can have this kit for a couple hundred bucks and you end up with a, a usable tool that, that I hope you never need. Yeah. How, how often uh, with all your, with all, every welder you've had, what's the percentage you think that you've used it versus you handing it out for someone else to use? Well, I primarily, because I have, I end up doing the welding 
gotcha. <laughs> on the stuff. But how many times have I used it on my vehicle Finding versus vehicle, everybody yeah. else's? Yeah. It's probably ninety percent, ninety five percent of the time on everybody else's, and and it's like a winch. Five percent on on mine. That's what I've seen too. It's, just, yeah. it's funny, like yeah, you, like I knew someone that had a welder back in the day, and I don't think he just ever used it. it. Yeah, yeah, it was just he, right. Yeah. You have to be careful because if everybody knows you have one, or if they know you weld, you're the guy that everybody yeah. wants to. Yeah, you're out of rod one. by the time you need it. Listen, we had we had a catastrophic failure in one of our military vehicles. We were in the Dumont sand dunes. Guy hit one of the sand dunes a little hot, and instead of backing off right at the top so it would break over, he he launched the truck. <laughs> so and when it landed, it blew the lower ball joint off of the left side, so the left front wheels flopping around broke the axle. But when it landed, it broke the motor mount off of the frame. Like it wow. didn't, it didn't break the rubber part of the mount. It peeled the metal off of the frame. That's awesome. So we took that truck and got it to a place where we could work on it. Jacked the motor up a little bit. We had three sixteenths plate. We had a little mini grinder. So we cut, we cut the plates. We made the engine mounts. And three and a half hours later, we had a truck that was mostly done for back on the road. And we drove it for another three years like that. Right. Wow. And the plan was, oh, when we get back home, we're we'll going to it. take it apart and do it right. But the the trail fix was, was good go. enough. And often enough, that's the case. Right. You, you weld a you, you weld a drive shaft flange on the trail or you weld a, a link bracket on the trail and it ends up staying there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We hear that a lot, actually, at the King of the Hammers when we're in our repair pit. Yeah. After we fix people. Oh, yeah, they come yeah, back. I broke that on. Yeah. Oh, we see it too the next year. It'll be the yeah. same thing. Like, you guys did this last year. We're like, man, you right. said you were going to fix that. Right. Why, didn't you cut, why didn't you cut that off? <laughs> yeah. It's like, because it's the nicest weld on my rig. Right. <laughs> you know, honestly, I think kind of the facts you're going over is why a lot of our customers love the trail weld kit. It's economical. It's safe. It's tough, you know. There's nothing crazy to it. You throw it, you know, in a tote and not have to worry about it bouncing around or anything funky happening. I think that too. It's also cost effective for what it's, like how often you use it, right? Because like the other devices like the this, what's that the, the spool gun yeah the ready welder ready welders are like aren't they like 500 bucks yeah, or so? 700 bucks 700, yeah and okay, the yeah. premiere if you get the alternator and the welding kit and everything's like 1200 bucks yeah right for something that's probably not not use that often. yeah i love my premiere i think premiere power is one of the most versatile tools on the planet it's a really 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 cool useful product it is the best welder because you can control the power output out of it too. Mm. So if I had a recommendation for somebody that was going to weld often with their vehicle based welding kit, I would say get, get a premier. The ready welder is probably second in line to that because mm-hmm. it's a spool gun. It's easier to yeah, use. You need, you need a pair of goggles and a, and a, and two batteries yep. and you can make something stick together. But if you're not going to do that often, do you need to spend 800 or $1,200 to do it? Yeah. You can spend 200 bucks, have it, in the ready and what about and, reliability though with like the wire and stuff does it ever come unspooled or have any issues when you're out there and you're just you know i never had any problems with the ready welder it's in a pretty robust case and closed up yeah. the the premier is a is a arc weld system gotcha. so okay. it, it's it's the same kind of the same thing you just plug the leads into their control box mm-hmm. and um and weld away um but you know, that's why we that's why we put ours in the container that we put it in the you know the ammo cans mm-hmm. a, a good storage place for all your gear and then the watertight tube just gives you the assurance that your your welding rod's not going to go back because how often yeah. are you going to use it it's true right you want you want that you hope up. you never use it yeah yeah i think actually we should look at that the swag off-road ammo can holders and maybe carry those with that thing yeah, that'd be cool yeah cool to add option. on to add on to it because yeah yeah that's a cool kit What's that? What is that kitten? 
it's it's a so it's this to store your ammo can to like it's tabs that like that you can weld to your chassis. Oh, and it holds the ammo cans down. That's great. Instead of put on you know rack, bungee cordon down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's Makes cool. It solid. It's simple. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I think you can lock them too. Yeah, right on. That is pretty badass. Budget. If budget was not an issue, Oof. what's your what's your dream build? I would build. If budget wasn't an issue, I'd build three vehicles. <laughs> I'd have, three, three I would have cars. Trout build me uh, an IFS car similar to Jason's, Jason Shears. Um, I would build a, I would finish my FJ45 project. I got a 1963 FJ45 pickup, and I would build a Defender 130 for expeditionary style driving. And the 130 is such a cool truck because it's a, a four-door, but it's got a real usable pickup bed. So it's a little longer. It's not something you would want to do on tighter trails. Yeah, those are pretty But cool. the four-door pickup is, is a uh, is a really, really cool truck, and they're super rare. Yeah. What kind of wheelbase is It's 130-inch. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the Land Rover's so base it off of... Long, yeah, the, the Land Rover's base it off of the wheelbase. So a Defender 90 is a 90-inch wheelbase. A Defender 110 is a 110-inch wheelbase. I did not know that. Okay, that and makes sense. And a Defender sense. 130 is a 130-inch wheelbase. Yeah, so I would build a, a four-door 130 on Dynatrax with an LS. Ready to party. What's your opinion on the recovery boards? I think recovery boards, like Max Tracks and yeah, things Max, like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think they have their place. Yeah. Um, I think a majority of people strap them on their truck because they look cool. Yeah. Um, one of the issues with those in real-world applications is they're really short, and you need a lot of them to cover any ground. So in our military training, we carry four full-length old airstrip aluminum stamped um, sheets. It's what they used to make like landing strips for in the desert. So they'd find a big flat area in the, in the desert over in Iraq and places like that. And they would put this corrugated, uh, dimple dyed aluminum panel down. That was about, I don't know, they're about 18 inches wide by four feet long. We carry four of those, um, per vehicle. Um, because that gives you, if you're in the sand specifically, it gives you enough length to be able to get moving and keep moving. Mm, the, you know the max tracks and things like that are great if you're stuck in a little bit of mud and you need to get out of that situation but if you're stuck in the sand you got to cover a vast yeah, distance <clears throat> you literally end up hopscotching those those sheets you take them from the the back tire once you're off of it right, onto the next right. one back to the front of the tire so you can keep moving across the top of the terrain um i do find them useful i find bridging ladders more useful than those tracks because I'm commonly in stock height or, or slightly modified vehicles that don't have a great approach angle. So if you come across the Mojave Desert and there's a road washed out, you got to have a way to get across that. And these bridging ladders are physically strong enough to hold the weight of the vehicle. So you put them out as literally bridge, bridge the gap and you can drive off of it. Hmm. Um, you can drive up a steeper incline if you put them at the base of the incline. So your approach angle isn't as, as compromised. So I see that as a more useful tool than than the sand ladders or the or the you know max track type stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I've seen some of the aluminum options out there that sounds super similar to what you're describing. Mm -hmm. um, just you know, a little different price tag, I'm sure. Yeah, but they seem pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, they're cool, and they we look tough. You know, look like a good, well built product. Yeah, 
and we, we, we find, you know, we use a couple of different types of the bridging ladders and, and we find that, you know, they twist and tweak a little bit, but they, you know, you do their drive, job. drive back over it the opposite direction yeah, and straighten flatten it out, out and strap it back to the roof. But again, it comes back to what are you, what are you going to need for this particular trip? Cause I see all of these guys carry all of this stuff all the time. You know, you know where my high lift jack is right now? It's in the garage. Right, it's not strapped to my car, so it looks good riding around town. You know where my extra fuel cans are; they're in the garage. Because when I'm driving around town, I don't need those things on the vehicle. That preserves the length of their life as well, right? So if, yeah. if you're going to have a new vehicle every couple of years and you don't care, then that's fine. But there's no need in carrying the extra weight or all of that extra stuff if if you don't need it. Those bridging pieces, or even the sand, you know, sand ladders, those are. They're big and they're heavy and they take up room. The plastic ones aren't as heavy, so you can store those somewhere. But how useful are they going to be for you? Yeah, when they're three feet long, it's really not doing much. It no. makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think a lot of times people, too, don't don't look at how they're stuck. You know, they, they, they would look at... that. They would look at the fact that they are stuck and, and, and come up with a plan to get out of it not necessarily look at how badly they're stuck and, and, and find the best course of action. Do you put both of those sand ladders on the left side of the car? Or do you put both of them in the bottom of the ditch to try to get the tires out of the hole? How do you analyze and know that? And that's where experience comes in. That's where you need more time to figure out how to get out of those situations. You know, in an extreme side hill situation where you think you might roll over, it takes five minutes to run a strap through the top of your roof you know, even if it's between the door windows and wrap that around the tree twice, you're creating a, a, a little bit of a safety. So one person can hold that. If it's wrapped around the tree twice, you have that safety yeah. fallback. But pride gets the best of us and we think we're good enough to handle it. And we end up rolling our truck over on a trail in the middle of nowhere. And now we got to get out. So it's, it happens to the best of us. Yeah, it does. What's your thoughts on the overland trailers? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, that some of them are really cool. I think they have a lot of nice stuff on them. For me personally, I think they're a little bit over the top. I think it's too much. It's not something that I would personally have, but it really, you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. If 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 a trailer is something you need to carry the extra gear that you need, or if you want you want to do that, I think that's a great way to get out there and do that. The Price of them is, they're really expensive. And again, go go back to your, the 90-10 rule. 90% yeah. of the time, that trailer is going to sit on the side of your yard and you're going to have to keep up with it. 10% of the time, you're going to have it out on the trail. So what are the things you could do to mitigate that? What are the ways that you could pare down what you have to carry versus buying one of those? And if you've got four kids and you're in a small vehicle, then you need one of those. So it really comes down to your your application, your need for it. It wouldn't be the thing. It wouldn't be something. I, I, I don't want anything else attached to me. I have a hard enough time getting through stuff with, without stuff attached to yeah. me. I'd rather not have another hindrance. Trailer driving is pretty uh, pretty crazy. It's definitely hard. You never drive for the vehicle. You realize right away that uh, it's what's attached to the back of it is what you have to right. watch out for. Yeah. And I tried that, and I rolled the trailer three times from Spider <laughs> Lake or from uh, the gatekeeper to Spider Lake. Yeah. I mean, it was like twice in the gatekeeper rolling the thing over. So you realize right away, like how much fun you really, yeah. Or you realize what you signed up for with the trailer. It's, it's a lot. Now you're going down the Mojave for a Perfect. seven yeah. day trip and you're on not arduous terrain. Go for it. That's, yeah. that's a great place for that. You yeah. can set up a base camp and leave it there. 
and go out and do your exploration on harder trails and come back to it. That's where one of those things would be. I mean, we do that occasionally. I'll take my enclosed trailer and we'll go out to the middle of nowhere and establish a base camp, leave the truck and trailer there and go wheel for for days around it, overnights away from it, come back to the base camp, resupply. Mm. So we've done that um, in the past as well. Yeah, I think if I were to spend money on outfitting, like like straight up just for overlanding or, or whatever camping, I think a trailer would be cool because that way I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to have my my truck always outfitted, right? And I'm only going ten percent of the time, so if I were gonna spend that amount of money, that's what I would do. Yeah. I think. Yeah. But at the same time, I could just put a tent, you know, a tent on the ground and be good. Right. So, and that's where the argument, you know, the, the argument versus rooftop tent versus regular tent, right? That argument exists for that reason. It's just as easy to pull a tent out of a bag in the truck and put it on the ground and set it up. It, yeah. it costs significantly less. Mm-hmm. It it weighs significantly less. Um, so, you know, where do you want to spend your time? Yeah. It's a little more comfortable. It's it's a little more top heavy. There's pluses and and minuses with everything we do that that plus or Delta gives us the opportunity to figure out where it suits us. And that's the other thing about rooftop tents. How many trucks do you see driving around town every single day with a rooftop? Tent it's like on? the new yeah. light bar. Yeah. It is yeah, the it new is. light bar. You yeah. know where mine yeah. is? Mine's in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want it exposed. I don't want it outside. I want it to last as long as I possibly can. And mm-hmm. I put it on when I need it. I put it away when I'm done with it. I have the room for that. I can put it on a pallet and put it up on a shelf at the shop. <laughs> but you know, maybe a lot of people can't do that. Maybe the the one on the back of their truck is is there because they don't have room to put it somewhere else. You got any favorite trails? I have so many favorite trails. What's your top two? Um, top two trails. This is really hot. That's, that's <laughs> tough. Um, like if you're going to plan a trip this weekend or in a month, like where would you just be? Hey, I, I really want to get back there. Yeah, um, there is. There's this place called Alstrom Point above Lake Powell. It's not a hard drive. If you're ever in that area, it's about an hour on dirt up to this point. But it's by far one of my favorite scenic views of somewhere I've ever camped. And we left Overland Expo um, last year and we drove back. And we hit like Zion and Yosemite and all those places. And and along the way, a friend of mine recommended, actually, um, James James and Claire, the people with the Dodge (laughs) truck, had stayed at this point. And, um, so we took, we took the 90 and drove up this trail and we ended up at the top of this place called Alstrom Point. And it is unbelievable. You're on the top of a cliff that goes down to the water at Lake Powell. So the Mm. scenery is just amazing. Big red rocks everywhere. And, um, the sunset was amazing and it was just, it's a really, really cool spot. So that's one of, one of my top, top spots. I mean, I love the Rubicons, and I love Fordyce, and I, I love all of that stuff. Um, my favorite trail in the Sierras is this trail called Long Canyon. It goes out of Kybers, up Silver Fork. Um, can't believe I'm even saying this on the radio. Somebody's <laughs> going to hear it. Um, secret spots. It is a secret spot, but it's a beautiful trail that goes up into the mountains. You end up at the top of this summit that's got huge bald rocks, and it's got some challenges along the way. I do it in a relatively stock truck, so it's it, it, it's not about it's not about the, the the difficulty, it's about being out there, being in the mountains. I love the mountains. So when you get to this summit, though, you overlook Kirkwood to one side and towards Lake Tahoe on the other side. You're surrounded by beautiful mountains on this big open landscape with huge rocks, uh, big big kind of 
big bouldery rocks that jut out of the ground. Oh, it sounds spectacular. And uh, yeah, that's that's one of my that's one of my favorite local spots. Well, as like a follow up to that, like where's a spot you've always wanted to go but haven't made it out to yet? Well, um, internationally, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a lot of places that I want to I want to see internationally. Um, one of my dreams is to is to kind of go chase the car and and follow that whole route. Um, that would be amazing. I did a lot in. Um, I did a lot in Baja with with the Normex and 1000. Um, the guy that runs a military company and I planned the race route for a, a number of years for the Nor Mexican 1000. So wow. that race is set up in a similar format as Dakar. It's it's route points and plots versus a map. Uh, although we plotted a map with a with a you know the, the the pink line that everybody follows, we did what are called tulip charts and along the tulip chart you have to follow a very specific mileage distance to get to the right turn and that's all you get you don't get a map into car you have to follow the route book the whole entire way so i, I would love to that's do sounds awesome one of those one of those races or, or or even chase it you know go go behind it on a dirt bike or, or something and and go do that that that's a that's a dream of mine we did a little bit of that in rally venture oh, yeah, just yeah, rally like venture the, was yeah that was a fun, yeah. fun trip you know, I ran into you in the summer earlier on the Rubicon, and you had a little kid driving a Land Rover. What was uh, what was that all about? <laughs> he was kind of making people look bad going through some really nasty stuff, and I don't think he was even like ten years old. It was really impressive. Yeah, we we uh, we took some some folks out on the Rubicon that, that had never been there, and and one of the guys had his son with him, and um, he was a little nervous in the car riding and I asked him if he'd ever if he'd ever driven he's like no I haven't haven't ever driven so I threw him in the driver's seat of the of the 90 and he was driving the a truck through the trail and doing a really good job at it the cool thing about giving somebody the opportunity to to learn in an element that they're uncomfortable with is they're they're super malleable to to learning and somebody that young that hadn't ever really driven at all was just he was on pins and needles and everything that that I gave him was you know his exact move and it was kind of cool to see that he he's probably hooked for life he did great right <laughs> yeah. He, yeah he killed it I mean he drove from the um from Ooh. the bridge what's that bridge called Ellis yeah from Ellis up through that big S turn. Well, we ran into you guys at like a soup bowl or something, I think. Yeah. 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 So I was impressed because you said he'd been driving since Ellis. I was like, wow, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's an accomplishment, especially awesome. in such a, yeah. a nice high end car. You know, you usually don't see too many of those out on the trail. And then when you do, you see a little kid in it and it really <laughs> kind of blows you away. You had to take a double take, you know, like, is this really, is this really happening? A buddy of mine has a, a right hand drive. Land Rover's an old old Land Rover. He lives over in Roseville. It's uh the red one oh nine. It's a big, big huge thing on thirty sevens, but it's right hand drive. And his his kid rides in the left front seat and they'll be going down the road and his kid'll just like look down at somebody, <laughs> look out the window and, and they're like, Oh my god, this kid's driving this car. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny to <laughs> not see a steering wheel. Who's yeah. driving? Yeah. Yeah, but that yeah, sounds cool. Having a, having the opportunity to get people out of their comfort zone is is something I love to do. Let them experience oh, yeah. more and, and see more in life. I'm a, I'm a teacher by nature. I, I love for people to learn uh, and, and grow when I have the opportunity to share something that, that I'm passionate or knowledgeable about. 
and those opportunities are are things that I I try to pick up on pretty quickly and get yeah get that young man behind the wheel and let him yeah like I said I was pretty pretty excited when I saw yeah. that that I was mean, actually I seen you walk in the trail so I mean I knew that the kid was definitely not going to make the wrong turn or anything yeah. but my yeah. um my 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 nephews came out it was a boys trip for for my nephews and they came out to see the Rubicon for the first time and to experience it and my one of the younger boys was he he was just a little nervous about about driving he didn't want to hurt anything and but he did such a good job you know and my brother hadn't ever really seen the Rubicon either so it was a cool family trip for them to come out and 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 experience it and we took a couple of days and got out there and did it off the top of your guys' head, Steve, Zach, do you, do you guys, I, I didn't prepare for this, but the new new product features or any new products in the, in the works that, that we got going on right now that we want to talk about? Well, I guess it is kind of appropriate. We are working on a, a bed rack for a rooftop tent. Nice. <laughs> and it's beefy. Just like all the other junk we make. It's uh, <laughs> a little overkill, but... Uh, It'll be able to support all those uh, excessive fuel cans <laughs> and uh, tracks systems and totally things put of, like of that sort. Three hundred pounds of fuel. Yeah, operation. nice. All it's going to be ready. Side. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it um, modular or yes, is it pickup yeah. kind of spe- specific pickup base? Totally universal. Nice. So it's also going to be uh, essentially a, the base kit will be like a mid height you know kind of halfway up your cab yep and then have some additional towers to go all the way up and above make a little bit more versatile so the dude that wants to add a awning or something fun like a one of those solar showers yep. or something like that doesn't have to buy a whole new rack and a whole new deal yep. just something a little bit more simple and more rector set style that's cool um yeah that's actually kind of fitting for today's topic it's definitely neat i mean there's definitely a need for that in the marketplace because so many people have to custom fab that kind of stuff for for rooftop tents or anything else plus having it lower makes a lot of sense i mean Mm -hmm. i'm looking at building out my 45 pickup with a kind of a custom flatbed with boxes built in and the rooftop tent on top of the boxes but my plan is similar to have it below the roof height so that it's not dragging in the wind all the time exactly i'd like to see our rooftop tent with some uh, add-ons to to have like the maybe some trays below the tent for storage you know you know what i'm saying like above the the bed but yeah Yeah. but below below the tent above the bed i think that'd be sweet yeah just a matter of time i've seen some custom ones like that but so yeah whole idea is to make it so tough you know i mean it essentially will be tougher than a lot of the aluminum bed trucks you get nowadays yeah. you know what it'll keep up with the rough stuff name you know it, yeah. it won't be a chintzy bed rack like i said you'll be able to use it as a ladder you'll be able to right. climb all over it put you know gas cans on it not necessarily you know tie off to it and save your vehicle from rolling or something but yeah uh, i mean you know we might try it hey you rip it know. off it's a recovery board <laughs> it's stronger than the mount yeah that's you know to like the bed it's yeah true. I mean, it's hard to, yeah, all bets are off with some of these plastic beds and things. So yeah. the know. biggest goal of the whole project is to make it uh, economical. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. so many of these things just have a, got a buzzword price tag on them, you know, and it's, you pay to play for a brand name. But yeah. Our brand name doesn't scream high dollar. So right. definitely trying to just keep it, you know, feasible for the regular Joe to be able to go play on the weekend. It's quality. Like you said, price something you're only going to use 10% of the time. You don't want to spend an arm and a leg on. Yeah. And 10% if you're lucky, really. Well, the nice thing is, too, is if you're not using it, you could 
basically unbolt the whole thing and put it into a box or something if storage was an issue when you're not using it. Right. It's a modular rack. Yeah. So, I mean, you get a couple of wrenches and you could unbolt 90% of it and have it, you know, fit into, I don't, I don't want to throw a size out in the box, but I mean, you could get it into a fairly small box. Yeah. It, it makes its, a lot of sense too, because yeah. it, again, 90 10 rule yeah 90 percent of the time it's a pickup truck and you need it as a pickup truck yeah. you got to put your bike in the back of it you got to put other stuff in yeah. it 10 percent of the time you put your rooftop tent on it for a week and you go on this trip right That's oh you're going time. to montana and see see yellowstone and all these places when you get home you can take that kit the way it's set up off and yeah. and it's more useful that and way and one person will be able to take it apart instead of having to get you know a yeah. team to get that whole thing lifted off anything else you want to go over tim man i just want to say thanks for having me in guys it's Kind of fun having having a little bit of a conversation. And yeah. yeah. Thank you for coming out, man. Yeah. It's super it's awesome. rad. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, real quick to button that up. So what's how do people find you? Like social media, where you where's your shop located? Yep. So um social media we're um at Scully Off Road on Instagram and um Scully Off Road or Tim Scully on Facebook. And uh shop is um down in Rancho Cordova. We're at thirty six ninety Recycle Road and uh come by and see some of the defenders and what we got going on down there and uh yeah we're kind of right in the middle of that recycle road uh mess down there look look for the shiny shiny four-wheel drive trucks in the middle of that <laughs> cool yeah right on man. Yeah, man thanks again yeah thank you yeah. guys appreciate yeah. it